As we continue through Leviticus, we come this morning to Leviticus chapter 23, verses 9 through 22. This will be the primary text that we are focusing on. I just realized I did it again. It's not 9 through 22, it's 9 through 25. Uh, But Leviticus, no, I'm sorry. We are coming this morning to Leviticus chapter 23, verses 9 through 22. And our New Testament, I apologize, our New Testament complementary passage is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 28. So, with your Bibles open to Leviticus chapter 23, in honor of God's word, please stand. Leviticus chapter 23, beginning in verse 9, hear God's word. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest, and you shall wave the sheaf before the Lord, so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb, a year old without blemish, as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the grain offering with it shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma, and the drink offering with it shall be of wine, a fourth of a hen. And you shall eat neither bread nor grain parched or fresh until this same day, until you have brought the offering of your God. It is a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. You shall count full seven weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two-tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. And you shall present with the bread seven lambs, a year old without blemish, and one bull from the herd, and two rams. They shall be a burnt offering to the Lord, with their grain offering and their drink offerings, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And you shall offer one male goat for a sin offering, and two male lambs a year old as a sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall make proclamation on the same day. You shall hold a holy convocation. You shall not do any work. It is a statute forever in all your, genera- in all your dwelling places throughout your generations. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Thus far in the reading of God's word, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 12 and continuing in the reading of God's word. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. But if 
Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God, that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. That God may be all in all. Thus far in the reading of God's word, let us pray. Father, as we come to this beautiful image, to this beautiful word, open our hearts by your Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who is proclaimed in this word. Open our eyes. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. So as we've been moving through these Old Testament pictures, we have been seeing great visuals. This is a movie script that none could ever match up to. We have seen fire coming down from heaven. We have seen rivers turn to blood. We have seen the angel of death passing over. We've seen darkness over all of Egypt except for the land of Goshen where Israel is. We've seen oceans divided and people walk through on dry land. We've seen really quiet words like take off your shoes. You're standing on holy ground. My name is Yahweh. And in that quiet word, blows out into this complete transformation of the wilderness. We've seen glorious pictures and we've seen quiet pictures. We've seen a Pharaoh's treasure house in the Holy of Holies, drenched in in, in gold and silver and fine embroidery and cedar wood in this place where the treasure is focused is the place of atonement. The mercy seat. We've seen beautiful pictures and we come again to another picture. Another picture that is here around the feasts of the harvest. 
Because it's our feast. It's the things that we celebrate. It's the things that are important to us that help define us. I mean, as an example, how would you feel, children, if your parents forgot your birthday? It just totally missed their mind. They had no idea it was your birthday. You'd feel like they didn't love you. You'd feel like you weren't important. You'd feel really sad. And it's because there are days that are important to us. The days that are important to God's people are first, this weekly Sabbath rest. Secondly, this annual Passover. But here, as we're going to look at our text and this harvest feast, I want you to see three things out of this text. The first is, in the harvest feast, in verses 9 through 14, you'll see this declaration. This declaration. Secondly, in verses 15 through 21, you will see this promise. And then finally, in verse 22, you will see living the harvest out. A declaration that is at the heart of what this festival is, a promise, and then living it out. Now, the New Testament is going to take this great harvest festival. It begins with this festival of first fruits, and it ends with what is known as the festival of weeks. By the time we get to the New Testament, it's the festival of 50 days, the festival Pentecost. And so it is on the day, the festival of Pentecost, that God pours out his Holy Spirit. This seven weeks of absolute perfection, completion, seven days of creation, the, the, the idea that things are now complete in the harvest festival begin with Christ the first fruit, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the first fruit of the resurrection from the dead and end with the ultimate Pentecost, the ultimate ingathering of the harvest when he delivers all things up to God. And in the meantime, you and I are a part of that reality. And that's what this feast that is held every year is focusing on. First, in this feast, there is a declaration from God. Second, in this feast, there is a promise from God. And thirdly, in this feast, there is an expectation of what it means to live harvest lives. Now, the declaration from God, before we get into that, I want to just draw you, if, if you are of a certain culture, then you will know all about Thanksgiving and its roots and all of that, and every time maybe your family sits down for Thanksgiving, you talk about the first Thanksgiving, right? The first Thanksgiving. This is what it was, this is what it was about, Right? So let's look at the first harvest feast. It's given to us in our Bible. The very first time the harvest feast is celebrated. It's in Joshua chapter 5, beginning in verse 10. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And on the day after the Passover, on that very day, 
They ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel. But they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to my servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Only one other time have we seen that, and that is when Jehovah God appears to Moses there on the mountain. Here the angel, the commander of the hosts of the army, Jesus Christ himself, stands on that very first day before the conquest of the land, before they go in and celebrate this feast of harvest. Jesus Christ himself stands before Joshua, his namesake, and says, go. And that very, very first festival is not what the Israelites grew themselves. Did you catch that in Joshua? They go into this land that has already been planted, that has already been cultivated, and their first year in this land, God provided for them from the land, and the very first thing they did, Joshua chapter 5, was celebrate this feast. They enter into the land of promise to find it flowing with milk and honey. And they lift up before God this feast. And the declaration that God has made to them and makes in this feast is that He is in control. He has provided for them this land. He has provided for them this feast. And every year they're to keep it. Now, if you know anything about farming, particularly subsistence farming, you know that it is one of those things that you can do everything right and things totally out of your control. A hailstorm. Lack of rain, birds, all the hard work that you put into this. And if you're a subsistence farmer, all this hard work that you put into this literally determines the course of your life before the next harvest. And so all your hard work, and yet there are so many things outside of your control. This, 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 this hard work under the hot sun, is for the purpose of a harvest. You're longing for that harvest. And when the time comes, 
you know at the same time that that harvest is a gift from God. Because you've known times when all the work you did didn't produce this very thing. The harvest is a declaration of God's care, God's provision, God's providing for his people. But then Jesus takes that harvest, and as we know, connects it to you and me. The harvest that you and I are. Bringing in the nations. Bringing all things under his feet. Bringing in a people to come joyfully into that harvest barn. And Jesus Christ is that first fruit of that harvest of eternal life. Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He is the first fruit of the promise that you and I will be raised from the dead. That you and I will have life and have it abundantly. He is the first fruit of all that the harvest is. All that the harvest indicates. Peace and rest. Fullness and completeness. But Paul makes a big point in 1 Corinthians 15 where he says, this only has meaning if this is a fact. If, in fact, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And I want you to pause for just a second on that. Because if I ask you, is Jesus Christ raised from the dead? All of us kind of go, well, yeah, duh. You know, Jesus raised from the dead. We celebrate Easter every year. But just pause. What does it truly mean that really and in fact, Jesus, Joshua, was born of a virgin that God was united to humanity and that God-man lived an absolute perfect life, that the perfect Jesus Christ, the second Adam who did so gloriously, where the first Adam failed, you know all the theology, you know all the stuff. How? What does it mean that Jesus Christ went to the cross, that Jesus died for you, that Jesus was buried, that he was raised again from the dead, that he ascended, and that he is seated at God's right hand, All those things, did they actually happen? And you need to ask yourself that question. Because the heart of faith, the eye of faith, says, Lord, I believe. I believe. I believe what Paul testified to. I believe what these witnesses testified to. I do believe that Jesus, in fact, took on human flesh. I believe what I declare in the creeds of the apostles. I believe. If you can say that, even in your weakness, even in your, I believe, help my unbelief. Beloved, this belief, this knowledge, this core conviction, this, I got nothing else to hang on to, but I believe that Jesus Christ is 
who he says he is. I believe. This is what has taken men and women through the fire. This is what has taken men and women through humility. This is what has taken men and women through storms. Storms where you wonder, can I draw breath? But this knowledge that Jesus is alive, He is reigning, He is seated at God's right hand, and He promises that He will keep me. I am His little lamb. I am nothing more. But my good shepherd is mighty. My good shepherd is strong. That is the promise of this first, that declaration of this first part of the harvest. If Jesus is what the Bible says he is, if Jesus is who the Bible says he is, changes everything. There's a declaration there. There's also a promise in this second part of the harvest feast. And this comes on what we know as the day of Pentecost. Fifty days later, a full week of Sabbaths in between the feast of first fruits and the feast of Pentecost. And you'll notice a difference. A difference is as you just scan again if you want. Look at those list of things that you're supposed to bring at the Feast of First Fruits, and look at the things that you're supposed to bring at the Feast of Pentecost. The Feast of First Fruits is a promise. You bring two sheaves of grain, and the priest waves them before God and man. He waves them to the four corners of the earth. It's a declaration to humanity of a promise that this harvest is coming. And then you have here in the Feast of Weeks the fulfillment of that promise, but again a promise that even more is coming. Now we bring not two sheaves of grain, but we bring two loaves of bread, and not unleavened bread, because that's the sign of mourning. We bring loaves of rich bread, nourishing bread, bread with leaven, and we bring a lot of animals, don't we? Did you read all that? <laughs> There's goats and bulls and sheep. and This is going to be a feast. We are coming to God with bread and meat. There is going to be a joyful harvest feast with our God. And that's what Pentecost is. That's exactly why God set this feast up to begin with. And it's exactly, Pentecost wasn't a random day. Pentecost is the day on which the Holy Spirit was poured out upon God's people so that you and I, united to Jesus Christ, have God's Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth, to guide us and direct us, to lead us in paths of righteousness. You and I have something, brothers and sisters, that's amazing. It's amazing and it was promised here in this old feast. It was promised here for hundreds and hundreds of years and beloved, it fell like tongues of fire on people's heads. 
It fell down from heaven. The gift of God's Spirit within you. Of course Paul says, don't grieve that Spirit. Of course Paul says, we walk in the Spirit. It's He guides. Of course John says, we walk in the light as He is in the light. We have fellowship one with another. The love of Jesus Christ cleanses us. The blood, I'm sorry, of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Beloved, this promise that is given to us in the Feast of Pentecost, we see around us today. We see the benefit. We see the fulfillment. Do you know it in your life? Do you know it in your heart? Because I can be honest with you. I can be honest with you. And anybody that's my age or older can tell you. Life is hard. There are betrayals. There are hurts. There's leprosy within and leprosy without. There is contamination on my heart whole own soul, and there is contamination in the world around me. Life, life's hard. And the promise of the gospel, the promise of these feasts, the promise of God, the promise of the garden, is that there's healing. There's direction. There's support. There's love. There's encouragement. We've got to first admit we need it. It took Paul, <laughs> boom, a whack on the head and lightning coming from, or fire, uh, light coming from heaven and a voice <laughs> going, Paul, you've got to stop. <laughs> Have a tender heart. Don't wait till that moment. <laughs> but beloved, do you know Do you know, covenant children, do you know that Jesus Christ is all that you need? That his ways are ways that are good. Quickly and briefly, I want to look at this third point that comes just out of verse 22. If we knew this, how would it affect our living? What would it do to our life? And I find verse 22 beautiful. Obviously, I mean... All of Scripture is beautiful. But it, what does verse 22 have to do with any of this? It really doesn't. Verse 22 is like an appendix to this. It, it, first, we've got the harvest of first fruits, and then we've got Pentecost, where we bring in the fullness of the harvest, and then we have verse 22. Oh, and you shall not harvest around the edges of your field. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am your God. Now, Elder Cologne in the Sunday school mentioned this Luke 10 and and the, the contrast 
between the wisdom that says, how close can I get to not having to love my neighbor versus how close can I get to the love and the care that God himself provides? How close can I get to sin without sinning versus how close can I ever possibly get to holiness? And this is one of these beautiful examples because it's stuff that I worked for. And yet, I didn't. Those of you who do gardening projects, is it a lot of work? Yeah. At the end of it, do you say, that's all me, baby? (laughs) Probably not. I know I don't. (laughs) Because at the end of it, I look at tomatoes that are all like half eaten with worms that I didn't get off. And I, I look at... I look at a disaster nine times out of ten when I look at my gardening efforts. But but even if you are the meticulous gardener, it's still God. It's God who brings it. And if you and I saw every gift that we have as a gift from his hand, do you think maybe it would change the way we grasp them? Do you think maybe it would change the way that we treat those gifts? If if what I've received materially is from God's hand, and if if, if I have that headspace, if I'm there, what he's blessed me with is his gifts. Then I'm going to be a much more generous person with those gifts. And the other thing I find fascinating about that verse, God doesn't say, Listen, I want you to reap all of your field except the outskirts. And then when you've reaped all your field, reap the outskirts and bring them to the temple so that the priest can distribute them to the poor. That is not what God says at all. He specifically says, I want you to provide for your poor neighbor." Who's living around these fields? Not the generic poor (laughs) that are often wherever Israel, (laughs) but the people that are around you and me. The people that God places in your path. The people that God confronts you with personally. Not some generic ideal, but the poor and the stranger that God brings your way. If you and I truly understood that everything is from God's hand, that God makes a promise that he will love you and care for you, and that you and I get to bear his image and reflect that image in our love and care for the person in front of you, Do you think it would be a testimony? Do you think it would be attractive? Do you think that it would be a city set on a hill? Do you think people would come? Do you think maybe people would say, there's something different here. There's something beautiful here. There's something that I see that I want. Beloved, if you and I pursue this, this image, Jesus Christ, our first fruit. Jesus Christ, 
the fulfillment in Passover. Jesus Christ, the Pentecost. The Holy Spirit poured out on us, walking in His life. Think how Paul uses it. He says, even your marriages. I speak a great mystery, but I speak of Christ in the church. Even your children, your relationship with your children, your relationship with your parents, your relationship with those who are beneath you economically, your relationship with those who are above you economically, everything becomes a testimony of who God is. And who our feasts say God is, is first and foremost... A God who gives us rest. He is a God who is our Passover lamb. And he is a God who provides. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. The one who is enough. The one who is the good shepherd. The one who guides in paths of water and grass. You and I can know that because we come to this Pentecost feast. We come to this feast which incorporates all of them. The Sabbath rest. The great feast of Pentecost. The Passover. When Jesus Christ said, I am doing this for you. Remember last week we looked and he said, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover. And then he instituted this meal. Because he walked up to that cross with a fierce determination on his face. That Joshua strode with the sword in his hand, the sword of the Holy Spirit, strode strove with Satan himself and marched up to that tree to purchase you and to purchase me. Almighty God and gracious Heavenly Father, as we see these beautiful feasts, these feasts of the first fruit, these feasts of the harvest, the feast of Pentecost, And as we see how this is transformed into the bread and the wine, Lord, we cannot but gaze in wonder. Open our eyes, enlarge our hearts, and give us a greater love and focus on you. In Christ's name, amen.